the Connell Tribune, Thursday the 8th of August 2019. August 69 came with a fierce vengeance. When apples still grow in September, when blossoms still bloom on each tree, when leaves are still green in November, it's then that our land shall be free. I wander her hills and her valleys, and still through my sorrow I see a land that has never known freedom, and still only our rivers run free. August 69 would change our young lives forever. For most young people, maybe it would be the leave insert that would stick in their mind or their first date, first kiss, first job, first pay packet. Or the music associated with the time, T-Rex, Ride a White Swan, George Harrison and My Sweet Lord. First drink. All our memories that we all have associated with our developing teenage years and becoming young adults. It's the start of something very special in your life. A lot of growing up has taken place in the preceding years. As Phil Curler would say, I learned about life and found me a wife. So we make new friends and form relationships and eventually bring our own children into the world. That's the way of things. I left second level education in May 69. Obviously a premature decision when viewed with hindsight. I enjoyed reading Yeats and Joyce but not so much algebra and geometry. Athletic and football were big, but Christian Brothers' discipline wasn't for me. So after my O-levels, I was off-ski into the big bad world and my first job in a bar down Belfast city centre. Six pound a week and plenty of tips. I wouldn't be a millionaire, but it wasn't bad for the times we were in it. Working in a bar was a natural progression for nationalist youths in the Belfast of the time. Similarly, driving buses, taxis, bookies, clerks, building sites. They were the jobs available in the west of the city, whereas if you came from the east, you were usually directed to an apprenticeship in the shipyards like Harlan and Wolfe. Builders of unsinkable ships, which were prone to iceberg detection. Or maybe Mackey's, Sirocco, engineering works, which were strictly the preserve of those from the other side of town. As far as education went, Queen's was also the preserve of unionists and rich unionist kids of that. Not many from loyalist working class, Shankill, Ayler. Although with the new Education Act post-World War II, things were changing and especially more nationalist kids were entering the hallowed corridors of academia. Of course, a lot of these things would possibly have gone over our heads, probably like coloured kids in the US. We might have known things just weren't right but thought that's just the way society was. We began, began to understand things a little better, better at the end of 68, when the RUC battered civil rights marches off the streets in Derry. Then in January 69, we watched as the People's Democracy marched, where marchers were harassed right across the six counties from Belfast to Derry, culminating in the vicious attacks at Burntollet. Around Easter, we actually went to a civil rights protest near the City Hall, possibly more out of teenage curiosity than convinced Marxist revolutionaries. But Bernadette and Michael Farr and the raggle-taggle band of PhD students were researching more than their thesis. Instead, the necessity for a change in the gerrymandered statelet, yes, we were even learning the lingo associated with protest, 
Not long after we took part in a march down the Falls Road, we were still at school. The RUC and B Specials attacked us and a native rioting prevailed. A few of us committed our first piece of revolutionary action. We threw a large plank of wood through the window of the Ulster Bank. It mightn't have been a knowledgeable act of anti-capitalist action, but it was a great talking point in school the next morning. I left school in early summer and made the journey to Donegal for a few weeks as I had done for the previous decade or more. It was a traditional route, as they would say in loyalist circles, and as all Northern nationalists did and still do, it got us out of the six counties for a few weeks every year, especially around the mad month of July. There's always been a perception that the Northern Stateless wasn't really ours. We were accommodated rather than accepted. They flew the flag of a foreign country and played God Save the Queen and BBC every night. And every 12th there were large bonfires with effigies of the Pope on them. Did they not know that Clement the sixth blessed King Billy in 1690. So the exodus to the south, or even the Free State, would take place every summer, with hundreds of thousands taking refuge in Bundoran, Guidor, Downings, Dunfanny, Buncrana and Moville. These were places that people felt more comfortable than their little seaside towns and villages in Donegal. It says a lot for the society in the six counties, but it was friendly, welcoming, they flew the flag of our country and RTE would finish with our on the vein. We felt at home. That summer of 69 would be the last time I'd swapped the blue skies of Ulster for the grey skies of an Irish Republic for a decade. Paraphrasing a famous loyalist wall, Murray of the 60s in Tigers Bay. Of course, Donegal wasn't just a holiday destination for me as my mum from Terman had been a regular visitor since I was three years old. When my sister and I were domiciled in the wee cottage near Dunwell for six months, when my mum almost died during the birth of twins, who unfortunately only lived 24 hours. For the next 12 years I'd be bound for the hills, initially at the blacksmith's cottage in Dune as my granddad and then uncle shod horses in the forge, and Aunt Nelly made scone bread on the griddle in the big open fire. Then from 1960 I was out to the mountain barns to Grady where Uncle John had acquired a pub and for three months every summer I'd be serving bottles of Double Diamond and Phoenix to Paddy Dominic and Paddy the Cope and many others. Also bread from Jack Geller's van, bacon and sausages from his brother Jim, biscuits and sweets from Jim Pat's and cigarettes from Hugh McGlynn's van which Harry, John Doy and I would later experiment with when Uncle John was away. This was away in the old, pu- the old pubs of the time. I loved the place and my fondest memories of my youth are those long hot summers of the swinging 60s and Maria Bailey wasn't even born. The work in the bar would be combined with long days in the bog in Loch Lilly near Glenvay, later in Devlin on the road to Dunlouis. Also turning hay, cleaning out the bar with old Lafferty, moving cows to new pasture, collecting eggs from the hen house. I saw Donegal in their first Ulster final in 66 and England win the World Cup, both at the Mountain Bar and both bad memories. But it was as idyllic as it could be for a city kid. I used to cry heading back to Belfast at the start of September. Those memories with hindsight probably left such an indelible imprint on my subconscious that in later years it might have impacted on the decision making process to make Terman a home 
for my kids and grandkids. While Belfast will always be where I was born and grew up, Donegal for most of my life would become a home from home. But suddenly August 69 came with a vengeance. We had already witnessed Burn Tollett, Samuel Devaney and Francis McCluskey battered by the RUC and Derry and Dungiven and dying as a result. Riots in the Falls Road, UVF bombings, political uncertainty as unionism, unionism began to implode. Terence O'Neill gave away to Chichester Clark, but not before compounding matters by suggesting that if they gave nationalist jobs and houses, they would live like unionists and not of 18 kids. How could an intelligent man like O'Neill utter such drivel? Like something Trump would say, and O'Neill was a liberal in unionist circles. We would soon find out what the Hawks thought. Fifty years ago next week, the six counties erupted in a fury of death and destruction, which would take over 30 years to calm down. But it lit a flame within nationalism, which changed the whole dynamic in the six counties, that the place was never the same again. How did we get to that stage? How, for the most of 50 years since partition, did nationalism accept the de facto statelet and just get on with everyday life without resorting to violence? How the end of the generation of nationalism refused to accept the status quo any longer and reject the unionist statelet and overall British rule? My parents lived in the six counties most of their lives. Born not long after partition, they personified the national experience in the northern statelet. They weren't political by any means, and like most northern nationalists, just got on with life, worked hard, kept their heads down, put up with the sectarian statelet and the annual orgy of sectarianism around the 12th. Dublin became a different world to them, which partition fostered, and Donegal was for a few weeks break every year. They lived through World War II and the IRA border campaign of the 50s. Neither Luftwaffe nor Republican bombs made much impact on their lives. They brought up a family living in a working class estate in West Belfast, and that was that. Like most nationalists, they just got on with life. Partition had copper fastened the division between North and South, and as the 60s progressed, it appeared as it would always be thus. But there was always an undercurrent within nationalism that was just below the surface. The Devil Street riots in 64 when Paisley threatened to march in the falls to remove a tricolour in an election headquarters is my earliest memories of something not right. The 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising in 66 brought a wee awakening of dormant republicanism. Although as 12 year olds we were hardly aware of Dublin in the rare old times. The Caledon housing sit-in in 68 by Austin Curry and others made headlines, although Celtic winning the European Cup earlier probably caused more interest and enthusiasm in our young lives. Jerry Fitt, the Republican Labour MP, led the massive celebrity parade down the falls. We did it, he proclaimed, with typical politician popular rhetoric. Fifteen years later, he was the only Irish politician to support Thatcher during the hunger strikes and Julie became Baron Fit of Bells Hill in the House of Lords, where the same people who carried him down the falls burnt his house down in Belfast for services rendered to the Crown, as he morphed into Fit the Brit, as his constituency rejected him for his treachery. In October 68, it finally came to a head with the attack by the RUC and marchers in Derry. There was something rotten in the state of Northern Ireland, to paraphrase a line from Shakespeare's Hamlet. 
and for the first time ever television pictures were shown around the world and this little dysfunctional statelet on the edge of Western Europe became news on a world stage. It was the beginning of the end of flirtation. Fifty years later and ironically by courtesy of Brexit the nightmare for Northern nationalism is almost over. So we arrive at August 69, events are simmering on the streets and things aren't quite well within unionism that's dormant. On a personal level I've been recruited along with many of my friends into the Republican youth movement. We're undergoing training in the un- this underworld, preparing for an Armageddon which we're told is just round the corner. This has always been the way in Nationalist Belfast. There's always been in the undercurrent of Republicanism, an integral part of the community, hidden by anonymity in quieter times, but always there, a backbone of military defence during the pogroms in 1920 at the founding of the new northern state. Always there as a mythical force in later times, but always there nevertheless as a deterrent to loyalist attack. This would be seriously challenged within the next few weeks as loyalism reacted to basic civil rights demands to change a sectarian society the only way they knew how by launching the biggest onslaught on Nationalist Belfast in half a century. Their statelet was been challenged for the first time since partition and sectarian bigots led by the RUC and B-Specials invaded the Lower Falls, Ardoin and the Bogside. It was different in Derry where a large nationalist majority close to the border were able to repulse loyalist and RUC aggression, but Belfast would be an altogether different ball game. The large loyalist majority at the time was about to engage in a form of ethnic cleansing unseen in the Western world at that time. Whole streets and nationalist houses burnt to the ground, families intimidated from their homes, thousands displaced in the biggest movement of refugees since World War II. Many travelled to the Republic while others to the relative safety of West Belfast. Last week I met someone in Galway who as a child their home was riddled by gunfire in Tigers Bay, coincidentally where we used to live. And they had moved to Andersonstown and stayed in the school for a month around August 69. When they returned to their house it was burned to the ground and sectarian slogans painted on it. She said her granny never got over it, their lifelong possessions destroyed by sectarian bigots. They personify what happened that week on the 15th of August 69. In the second part of this article next week, we look at the week that changed my life and countless others, the horrific nature of communal violence and the arrival of British troops in Irish soil for the first time since they left Beggar's Bush Barracks in 1921. How sweet is life, but we're crying, how mellow the wine that we're dry, how flagrant the rose, but it's dying, how gentle the wind, but it sighs. What good, good is in youth when it's aging, what joy is in eyes that can see, there is sorrow and sunshine and flowers, yet only our rivers run free.